Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me this week is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis Podcast, which has over 100 episodes in the archives and guests from pretty much all walks of life in the tennis world, so be sure to check that out as well. I'm sure Carl has lots of great episodes on deck for us. Yeah, the next one is just going to be made up of snippets of Jeff pitching it, because I think I enjoy listening to that more than my own episodes. We might be up to 30 minutes by now, up to about 50 episodes that we've done together of this, so the pitch probably averages 30 seconds. Yeah, you can... And I added this little digression just to make sure. Well, it, you might end up going over 30 minutes, so you'll have to be really careful with the editing on this one to, to keep, stay on brand. I always am. Okay, good. Um, by contrast, the Tennis Abstract podcast is not. We could be anywhere from 55 minutes to 75 minutes, and maybe we should be closer to 30 minutes. We'll see what you think after today's episode. It can be uh, as long as you listen. <laughs> as long as you listen. Yeah, that, that actually happened to me. I was trying to record my screen for a, a tennis match, a match I wanted to chart, and I left it to run on my laptop overnight. And when I woke up the next morning, I expected to see just advertising or the video had ended, but the video just repeated. So I had this this screen cap of a match playing three times in a row. So if you're interested in innovative ways of listening to our podcast, that's something to consider. Just put it on repeat and maybe by the third time it'll start to be funny. Maybe not in a good way. Maybe not in the way we intend. I'm not sure. Let us know. Yes, definitely. Definitely let us know. Um, so we're midway through the big tournament in Miami. Uh, we wrapped up Indian Wells last week and Carl and I were just talking before we started recording that it, it seems like it's been a little slow. We've had a number of upsets, some of which we'll, we'll get to, especially on the, the women's side of things, but it, it feels like it's been a little slow getting started on the men's side. Not only has the tournament been slow getting started, a couple of the favorites have also been slow coming out of the gates and that includes Roger Federer, who lost a set to Radu Albert, and it includes Novak Djokovic, who lost a set yesterday to Federico Delbonis. And I mean, Delbonis has the win over Federer in his in, in, in his history, but not normally the sort of guy you think of as a big threat to the top names. So, Carl, I think you said you'd watch some of that match. Is there anything we can learn from that? Like, is it a weakness in Djokovic, or was he just was he just unmotivated in the early rounds here? What do you think was going on? I don't think his motivation flags, but he, he said after the match that his focus flagged, and that's that seems to fit what, what it looked like. Or, you know, his focus was there, but it shifted to, like, being angry at himself or angry at his racket or the court or his opponent or something. And I think we've all seen that kind of Djokovic frustration flare before, uh, and frankly, it happens to every player, but when you're number one in the world and have won the last three major titles, it just feels different and more surprising. And he's coming off that surprising loss to Cole Schreiber in Indian Wells pretty early in that tournament. So I think this, this raised some red flags too. But, you know, even with a best of three where there isn't as much margin for error, Djokovic has a lot of margin for error and he can lose focus for a set and a half and still win the third set 6-1 and be comfortably into the next round. 
Yeah, it, it was funny. Watch, I wasn't watching the match last night, but I was watching the live scores, and I, I saw that second set result come in and was thinking we were in it for the long haul, and then the next time I checked, it was over. <laughs> like the, the, the third set barely took any time at all. And there was even, I think Del Bonus even went off court in between for blisters or something. So yeah, that, that time that you didn't check wasn't all tennis. Okay, so even faster than I thought. I wonder if, if there is, is something magical that Del Bonus does to, to distract his opponents because his, his toss is so high. Like the first thing you mentioned, Carl, was that Djokovic, his, his focus flagged and maybe just flagged because he had to wait so long for the toss to come back down and the serve to come to, over to his side of the court. That's why Del Bonus is one of the best hold percentages on tour. Citation needed. <laughs> yeah, citation, me making a joke. Um, yeah. yeah, it was funny. I saw some of that match and some of Shardy Chorich, and Shardy maybe has a higher ball toss or just a more distinctive one. I don't know. There's a lot of ball tossing happening on, on screen. Yeah, Shardy does have a have a high one. Um I guess Burdich is the other player who's known for having the the sky high ball toss. Do you have an opinion about that, Carl? Is that do you think that's a positive or negative? Uh, I mean, I have some opinion, but the the main opinion I have is that it's not worth having too much of an opinion, just because it seems like of all the things players do, that might be the most stable. And again, you would need a citation for that one, and I have none. But anecdotally, it just seems like maybe that's something that they learn so young and that they practice so often and that they're like doing in their head. And sometimes they're doing without a ball while they're waiting for a flight. And, you know, that's where they expect the ball to be when they go through their service motion, which is the other thing they've been doing forever. So it's, it's more interesting to have an opinion about things that players can are realistically going to change. And I I can't think of too many there, there, it's almost like, you know, that it's, it doesn't happen much because it's such a big topic when a player does try to change their ball toss. Okay, all that said, I think a high ball toss makes a lot of sense. It gives players time to, to spot the ball and, and prepare their motion, except that it's a real um, potential disadvantage in extreme weather, like very sunny conditions or very windy conditions. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it does. It is an issue in the wind. Yeah, a tennis coach pointed out to me years ago that it, it does give you more time to, I guess, to think or prepare or whatever, but it does mean the ball is coming down faster. So if you imagine the the point of contact, the ball is going to spend fractionally less time in at the point of contact or close enough to the point of contact. So your serve has to be a little bit more precise just because gravity is doing its thing. Yeah, as you said that, there's a replay of yet more Djokovic still bonus on Tennis Channel. And Djokovic hit an ace off, you know, like hitting that ball right at the at the point that it's still in the air. And I mean, it, it does seem like the advantages that confers outweigh the advantages of the high toss, which is why the high toss is pretty rare. Yeah, it really is. It, it, if it's something that's noticeable enough that we'll talk about the likes of Shardy and Del Bonus, it must stand out quite a bit. There's not a lot of other reasons to talk about those guys. Um. Now, with with Federer having dropped this early set, Djokovic having some focus issues early on, uh, Nadal's out of the tournament, Team is out of the tournament, Chilich is out of the tournament, Zverev is out of the tournament. Uh, lots of guys have lost early. My forecast is pretty optimistic for a Federer or Djokovic victory. It's pretty close to a 30% chance for Federer to win, 40% for Djokovic to win. So that's better than a 2-3 shot that one of those two guys lifts the trophy in a week's time. 
do you think that's too optimistic talking about two guys who've just dropped a set in early round matches against unseated players? Yeah, maybe slightly. I mean, I, I do think that now that the mighty hardcore dominator of Dominic team is out of the draw, it does make things really open for Djokovic and Federer. It was Indian Wells champion Dominic team. That that's what I'm saying. He'd come in undefeated on hardcore masters in 20, 2019. I'm 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 being snarky for no reason. He had a great great title for him, but it, it, you do look through the names and the percentages in your forecast, and it kind of adds up. I mean, did you, did you happen to notice who the next two guys were in in your forecast? Is it Medvedev and Tsitsipas? You happen to notice, or just know? Yes, and you know they're they're very good players. They're they're they could certainly win. I wouldn't be completely shocked, but giving them each between five and six percent to win at this stage in the tournament feels right. Yeah, I, I felt the same way looking at those numbers. I, I did check before we, we started talking. Just whenever we, you see those big numbers, you kind of wonder what's left for everyone else and whether it's evenly split. or if, like In the case of Medvedev, his, his ELO is a lot more aggressive than his, his current ATP rank. So I'm not surprised to see him up close to 6%. But and that's even though 6%. he could face Federer in a few rounds. Yeah, he has the... the I guess all these guys have the tough path of potentially having to beat both Federer and Djokovic to, to get to the top, um, to get to the championship. But um, yeah, Medvedev would would face Federer early. Uh, now that number five in in possible wins, partly because he he's already through the fourth round, is uh, Nick Kyrgios. Yeah, we should probably talk about Kyrgios. I wrote some stuff a couple weeks ago, and I don't think we've touched on it on the podcast. I think I threatened on the podcast to start my 10-part series about the uniqueness of Nick Kyrgios. But he's been he's had a pretty easy path so far. He had Alexander Bublik in his, his first match, which I didn't watch. Sounds like it was entertaining, or at least people anticipated it would be entertaining. And then he had an easy match last night against Dusan Lajovic. And that seems like the kind of match where you normally worry about Kyrgios. Like, you never worry about him playing Nadal or Federer in the, in the late rounds. But third round against Dusan Lajovic, that sounds like the kind of match that Nick Kyrgios would find a way to screw up. But, I mean, it, it looks like it was pretty clean performance from him getting in and getting out and getting the win, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the first set, though it was something like 6-3, was was complicated. And then the second set was very fast. The other notable thing that people were talking about was that Kyrgios tossed in a pretty bad underhand serve. And while he disguised <laughs> it, Lajevic had, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes to take a step or two forward and hit the ball. And instead just, like, hung back and let it be an ace and then angrily push the ball aside so that that was a weird moment um i think that clinched a game for curious too because they walked back to their chairs afterwards you know it's i had the same thought like oh yeah this is a trouble match after the match here here's part 11 of your series on curious in the studio on tennis channel they said that curious is 12 and 0 against guys what was it outside the top Maybe like unseated guys in Miami. It was basically making the point of the players you would expect him to struggle against in Miami, he actually dominates. So there's something about Miami where like the usual curious narrative doesn't apply or it's a fluke. Has he played Miami that many times? Yeah, this is his fourth. He's played it four times and each time he's made the, um, the fourth round. 
Do you think that's a real thing? Something about the tournament or the environment that's making him stay focused? By the way, it, the couldn't be, calendar? it couldn't be 12-0 and 0 because, yeah, he doesn't have that many matches in Miami. But um, he is quite good against lower-ranked players. Maybe it was lower-ranked players. Um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a small sample size, so who knows. But not only has he won these matches, but a lot of them have been fairly routine by his standards because he is very tie-break prone given his hold and break percentages. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know... It's, it's something that we've talked about on the show, and I think you've studied a bit this, this notion of do players do well at certain tournaments where they've done well in the past beyond what you would expect from surface and other factors? And I guess the other factors is complicated enough that maybe you can't answer that question cleanly, but um, it is something players say, like, oh, it's always good to be back here. Like, I feel very comfortable here. I like, I like visiting the city, et cetera, et cetera. I, if someone is looking for a really, a, 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 if they're looking for a really intensive project that would require a, a ton of work and not a lot of rewards, so I'm trying to make it sound appealing already. I, I would love to know in a, in a, in some type of comment like that, like players commenting on tournaments at which they're playing, uh, what the ratio of positive to negative comments is. Because you're right, Carl. Players say that all the time, but my my reaction always is like how truthful can they be if they're almost never saying the opposite? Jeff, I think you just are looking on the wrong scale if you're looking for positive versus negative. You, I don't know how much you take an Uber or Lyft, but from a sort of data point of view, their ratings are famous for um, being clustered really close to five. And so you need to like look for the gradations. Or Airbnb is another example. Like There's all sorts of social pressures to always give a five. But you need to like read between the lines. What are people actually saying so there's a difference between like i'm always glad to come here or i'm happy to be here and like this is my absolute favorite tournament and i love it so much um so now it's a project that's gotten way harder because you have to you have to interpret these things and weigh on different players semantic scales but um what one one trick that i found is that players often say this is one of my favorite slams that's not a compliment. <laughs> there are only four. I, I on a sixteen-hour flight recently, I spent half of one of the hours watching a video about the twenty eighteen Australian Open made by the Australian Open. And even though they must have had hours and hours of footage to choose from, in which people called it their favorite slam, because plenty of people love the Australian Open, there were so many people included in this video saying this is one of my favorite slams. Well, if people start saying at the Miami tournament that it's one of their favorite. Florida tournaments, <laughs> then, Looking at you, Del then you'll know it's it's not not that strong of a statement. I know that players really love Delray Beach, but still not quite in the same league. Um, so with with Curios, the couple of articles that I wrote, one of them, the first one was basically saying Curios isn't as inconsistent as we think, and that looked at match results and. You mentioned, you were, you were saying, Carl, Miami, he, he always beats the guys he's supposed to beat, either lower-ranked players or unseated players, something like that. And the the conventional wisdom on Kyrgios and often on players who are like Kyrgios, like the tiebreak-prone guys like Isner and Karlovich, the conventional wisdom is that they're unpredictable, that they're more likely than similarly-ranked players to score upsets over the top seeds, uh, they're also more likely to be upset by lower ranked players. 
But I've found in, in a couple of different studies years apart that uh, that's not the case, that Kyrgios is maybe a little bit more unpredictable than average, but he really doesn't get himself involved in more upsets than you'd expect, certainly not at any statistically significant level. Uh, but on the other hand, if we're talking about consistency from point to point, then the conventional wisdom, again, for Curious is that he's very inconsistent. He, he, he turns it on when he needs to. He turns it off when, when the points aren't important. And the data absolutely bears that out, that I looked specifically at return points. Uh, we can do serve points another day. But on return points, players are a little bit better on return at, at higher leverage points, points that matter more towards the end result of the match. But Kyrgios is way different. His... his his sway in, in return points one uh, from unimportant points to very important points is is huge, like an order of magnitude more than than other players. Um, I guess, Carl, since we started by talking about the the, the Miami results, like, are you, are you surprised by that? Would you have expected? Let's start with the first the match level results. Would you have expected to see Kyrgios come out as a guy who's involved in more upsets than expected, or I mean, does the data just kind of add up for you that uh, maybe this is all just kind of a result of paying too much attention to this guy and a couple of big wins here and there? Um. Yeah, I mean, it, I think that my impression of him, like many people's, is so shaped by very, very few matches because what we're really thinking of is how well he's played against three guys, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. And so I didn't know what to expect because I didn't really have a sort of intuition formed around how his performance differed among everyone else. And everyone else was what, what was is what was going to shape the result just because they make up the large, large majority of his matches. Yeah, I mean, it, the wins against the top three should be weighted more heavily because we're, we're talking about much bigger upsets. I mean, obviously being being number 20 and beating number one is a, is a bigger deal than being number 20 and beating number 12. Um, a lot more, but even accounting for that then still turned out that those sort of came out in the wash that he isn't particularly inconsistent but then on at the point by point level like i said he he's, appears to be inconsistent feels like the wrong word because it is a tactic it's I mean, it, at least at some level it's something that he's doing on purpose and maybe all players do a little bit on purpose um but what i'm what i'm curious about is if this is a good thing like it it works for him to some extent because he's he isn't maybe able to to give his best effort 100% of the time and he finds a way to turn it on at least sometimes in the bigger moments but if you had to pick between like let's say you have two players both of whom win 30% of their return points would you rather have the guy who uh who is like curios and can turn it on when he needs to or would you rather have a guy who can play at his best level all the time even if that best level is not very good <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, thirty percent. My thirty percent number isn't very good. So to say playing his best, it just needs to be specified that we're not talk, talking about turning Curios into Djokovic. We're talking or about Schwartzman, some, or Schwartzman. Yeah, we're we're talking about a, a sort of parallel universe Curios who's still not a good returner, but he's consistently bad as opposed to extremely variable. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. 
this I don't intend this as a criticism because I would think of it the same way. But there are so many assumptions baked into it. Like, and, and you know, for instance, if if Curios wins, let's say thirty percent is his average, but he's winning some something absurd like forty percent on really important points. You could also ask, well, doesn't that mean he could just win forty percent on all the points if he can choose to do that on big points? Uh, and if that's the case, then obviously he should like there's just no question he would have um either you could say he would have more of the important points in that case because he's get to break points more or he would like break more at love and 15 if he were doing that um, if he could if he could do that we're talking about 40 percent return points with his service game he'd be number one a year from now yep yeah maybe sooner um on the other hand you know for players who seem to like you said have a tactic of doing this is it a tactic because they're conserving some kind of energy for those big points? Like if he did try to win the other points at that higher rate, would his would his percentage on the big points drop as a result? And would that trade-off not be worth it? Is it a tactic because it throws off his opponent? Like if you are serving to him at 40 love and he is clearly not even going to try to return the serve, then it makes it harder to return to an engaged Nick Kyrgios at 30-40? Um, you know, I, I don't know. And I don't know if there's someone who could get like a candid public response from him about this, or if he even fully understands what he's up to. Other than that, it generally seems to work pretty well. He's had a good, though injury plagued and inconsistent career. Um, but you know, I think if the question is like, I can distribute the way you phrase it, if I can distribute three out of 10 return points, one, any way I want, I'm going to put all my chips on the big points. I mean, it, within reason. Like if you tried to only win the big points, you'd never get to them because you'd always lose, you'd always get to 40, uh, love 40, excuse me, the opposing server would always get to 40 love because you weren't trying. So there needs to be some trade-off, but in general, if it's like either way, I'm winning this many return points, then it makes sense to weight them on the big points. And in fact, he gets more bang for his return buck. Yeah, that's true. And the way that I did at least part of that study was looking at leverage over the course of the whole match, not just leverage in the game. So it's, oh, good it's, not, just, yeah. it's not just a matter of uh, of turning it on at break point. It's a matter of turning it on when the when the game score matters. So Five all, love all, or six. Yeah, it's high break. Exactly. Three, three, yeah. Yeah, which I think is how it should be done. I mean, any player, curious or otherwise, is going to be aware that Five five is a really big deal, even if he normally can't maintain the return focus for an entire game. Here's another study that would be high cost, low reward, but I'd still love to see someone do it. Somehow get players to sit down and like estimate relative important relative importance of different scores and see how that compares to what simulations say. Like how well are players mentally modeling the important relative importance of different stages of matches? Yeah, I would love to see that too. And I think one way you could approximated and i'm talking really approximated is look at how much time they're spending between points Um, yes great point that's that's still pretty work intensive unfortunately we can uh, we can approximate that by look by looking at some of the data with time stamps on every point but even then we need to estimate how long the points themselves are taking and work around bad data stemming from challenges and other disruptions of play but but yeah, in, in I think that in general players take longer before points they think are important. Certainly the guys who take a long time seem to do that. Um, so that would get us something. But I'm not sure it would 
it, it would be enough uh, when you take into account all of, like the multiple levels of approximations happening and the and and getting the data clean enough to to get some good results out of it. Uh, there were two follow-up questions I had about the the two posts. Was it was there anything else you wanted to say there? No, go ahead. Uh, and these could well be parts forty-three and ninety-six of the series, but maybe it was you just have a quick answer. I didn't read carefully enough. First on the return points and leverage, uh, it's it's very clear in an incredibly compelling you should all read it fashion. Just how strong a result this is. Like you can do just as good a study. Uh, and Jeff has many times, and you just, because of what the data is, you don't get a result that's as clear and as as big as the difference between Curios and the rest of the ATP. One thing I was curious about was, is there anyone, any individual player who's close? Like, it's clear that the ATP as a whole is, is far from Curios on this front of turning it on in high leverage return points. Is, is there someone who is near Curios levels? And conversely, is there someone who's the opposite? Who's like, I've earned all these all these big return points and now I, I am going to suck? <laughs> yeah, that, that's a quote you'd want to get from a player after the match. <laughs> well, um, Federer at times. Yeah, I, I didn't do that. It's, it, it's a pretty computation-intensive process to, to run this stuff for every player, so I just haven't done it yet. No, I'd love to see that too. And I, I kind of suspect that the other really big servers, that especially Isner, will will have some effect like this, even if it's not nearly as strong as Curios's. But that's just a guess. I don't know. Uh, but short answer is no. I'd, I'd love to see that too. Okay, so we'll, we'll call that part 312. The the second part of... So this is 1B, not, not two of my questions. Um, do you think it's possible that some of this... And, and I'm, I'm sort of reacting to what you just said... If we know Kyrgios is this way, and Isner and Karlovich, we surmise, could be, and, and Opelka, um, do you think some of this effect, and if so, how much, could be a result of the other server feeling extra pressure on those big points because they know they won't get many chances on their own return points? Hmm. I don't know. I, had, I hadn't thought about that at all. Um, I can't think of of instances in matches with those players where opposing servers seem to struggle with that too much. I mean, the, the logic is sound, but I can't, I, I, I can't imagine a, a good player standing there at, at break point against Isner and thinking, I really need to make a good serve here or else he's going to eat me alive with his return. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. And this is now getting really into the realm of like my brain summarizing maybe a handful of points I've seen in my life, so it's not very reliable. But my sense is the serve isn't affected, but that maybe once they're in a rally, the nerves could kick in of like, oh, now I'm maybe not 50-50, but maybe 60-40 on a really important point because this could be effectively match point. And that's something that I, I, I'd love to understand better as well is sometimes you watch Isner or Kyrgios in a rally and you wonder... Like, how are these guys not winning more return points? I mean, of course, there's plenty of, of examples on the flip side as well, where you see them just do horrible things that wouldn't keep them on tour if it wasn't for their serve. But I mean, the, the last couple of Kyrgios matches I've watched, he's in these 20 stroke backhand rallies with people with credible ground strokes. Like if you're, if you're good enough to do that, you've got to be better than this 28% return points one stuff. Uh so yeah, I, I do and, wonder, like, is is there a point where if 
if you know that about a, someone like Curios and you find you think you have this like eighty percent chance of converting a service point, but then you find yourself in a backhand rally and you're like, shoot, this is fifty fifty now. Like I now the pressure's on. Yeah, and I mean I think that gets into the the struggle, although there are stats to help, but it's still a struggle always to separate return performance as in purely returning the serve from return performance once the serve's been returned. Like to what extent is it just the Kyrgios and Isner get into fewer of those rallies once they when they when they're returning? Um, yeah, that yeah, that's always a factor. <clears throat> so my my question too was on the uh, the first Kyrgios post about Kyrgios being more predictable than we think. Are there enough matches in a year that you could look at the uh, consistency of consistency? I mean, I think you, you get at it um, for Kyrgios. Like you give the example of looking at a few of his performances by year and how they compare. But like across all players, is it possible to say like this is a consistent skill or whatever you want to call it or not? The, the same way that people have done that for clutch and and other attributes as a way of saying, hey, this this is a fluke. This isn't a real thing because even this guy who looked super consistent one year was super inconsistent the next year. It's tricky because the way that I the way that I looked at that was, I mean, I was calculating calculating Breer scores just for individual players matches. So, for instance, for for Curios, what I was saying was like. Given what we thought about Kyrgios going into every match, how much did he meet or or not meet our expectations? Um, and like I said earlier, it, it turned out that he pretty much met our expectations. But one of the main problems is if a player does legitimately improve or or what's the opposite of improve for a tennis player? I can't think of the word, but um, or see his ranking go down, then that's going to show up in the Breer score. Like it's not inconsistency. It's just becoming a different player. Right. Like their rating is a lagging, a lagging indicator of their level. Right. Exactly. Um, And I think there's probably statistical techniques I'm not familiar with to, to separate just the, the up and down inconsistency with a season of up or a season of down. Uh, But I didn't factor that factor that in. So if, if you have a player like Kyrgios, you should probably assume that, in his career, you're going to have a couple of seasons of up just because he's gotten better and, and gotten to the point where he has, he's at in the game. Um, so I don't think you'd be able to do that. Like, I think maybe if you were to look only at players with 10 or 12 years of experience or something and then cut off their first year or second year, or maybe eliminate certain years where their ranking radically changed uh, to use an, an external data point for that sort of thing, maybe you could do it. But I'm not. I'm not sure. I feel like you'd end up getting rid of a lot of data just to end up with a a a, a, a data set that had none of those problems. Yeah, tough problem. Yep. Yeah. Um, but in general, I mean, this is something that I've looked at a, a number of times from a variety of different angles. Often, not specifically about curios. Just we are so good as humans in general, tennis fans in particular, at creating stories and patterns out of any couple of matches that we see. And so many of them just don't stand up to analysis. So if you're thinking that there 
there is a pattern like Kyrgios is really good at Miami or he's much more upset prone. Like your prior in that situation should probably just be that it isn't true. Uh, it, 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 that might be a tiny bit strong, but when I personally, when I hear commentators speculate about this stuff, I just assume they're wrong and maybe one time out of 10 or two times out of 10, they're not and they're onto something. But for me, that isn't worth it to say 10 falsifiable things, eight of which are probably going to be falsified or at least are wrong and nobody cares enough to, to investigate further. Those are two very different categories of wrong. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and total digression, but side note, I've been watching a number of older matches lately and I've been struck by how it, before the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I don't think commentators said as many falsifiable things. Uh, I I think that maybe with the trend towards sports analysis in general, even people who aren't doing like data analytics stuff, they know that that's the trend. So they feel like the way to talk about sports is now this more analytical way. Uh, So they make more claims like the sorts of claims we're talking about. But if you listen to a tennis commentator from 20, 30 years ago, they're saying, that's a really sharp volley or she did a really good job opening up the racket face on that or just either technical details or just commentary on what has happened, not what's going to happen or what this tells us about the future. Uh, Yeah. And I think some of it is also availability of data. Like it's, it's the danger of, we have a lot more information so we can, we can pull some sort of cherry pick stat out and then make a broader claim from it. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. I mean, you know, Carl, that any any press person showing up at a tournament gets handed a stack of paper every day, basically, or it's available to you. So if, if you want to do, if you want to look for article ideas, if you want things to talk about during a broadcast, they might not be good ideas, but you're being handed dozens of ideas uh, on, on a constant basis. So so yeah, I think it, that makes it easier to speculate about them compared to the state of things maybe 30 years ago. And then for the last, you know, six, seven years, they've been handed infinite data points on Tennis Abstract. And I do know from tournaments that people are using it. And yes, I realize that sounds self-serving, but it's not my site. Yeah, it's not self-serving for you, but it does feel a little self-serving for me. So um, thank you. Do what I can. Hopefully, I've, I've been promising various people there'd be a new and improved version of the website for more than a year now. So maybe... Maybe someday there will be one. If I just say it enough, maybe it will magically come into being. That's what we can all hope for. Um, let's talk about some of the WTA action as well. I mentioned at the, the top of the show that there have been a lot of upsets. And let's start with a couple of those. Ooh. Number one seed, number one player in the world, Naomi Osaka, won one match, but then lost to Sue Shea. Uh, Sloane Stevens also won her first match, but then lost yesterday to Tatiana Maria. The Shea upset, I mean, she's been having a great year. She's a tricky opponent. It's kind of understandable. Tatiana Maria, not a particularly tricky opponent, not someone you'd expect to come out and, and upset a top five player. And this is where Sloane was defending her title, I think, right? That's right. So pretty rough losses for both of these players. Um... We also lost Angelique Kerber to, she lost to Bianca Andrescu for the second time in about a week, maybe a little bit more than one week. 
By the way, uh, Universal Tennis Rating per Tennis Channel has Andreescu as the number two player in the world right now. So not an upset. I'm going to go with still an upset. <laughs> that's, the, that, that's the frustrating thing about being skeptical. You're still skeptical even when, when things are data and algorithm driven. Now, By the way, yeah, according you, to ELO, not an upset. Really? Andreescu 7, Kruber 8. Even on hardcore, I guess it, it, I wouldn't expect it to be different on hardcore for... It is not wow. different on hardcore. How about that? I did not expect that. I, 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 I did not either. <laughs> after Indian Wells. I, I'm a, I feel a lot better with number 7 than number 2, though. Um, yeah, although WTA, you... not an enormous difference, whether it's ELO or WTA ranking points. No, but compared to UTR, it's a huge difference. Yeah, no, I'm just um, saying num- from number seven to number two is not a big difference in, in any of these systems right now. Oh, I see what you mean. Just the, the, the number of points. That's certainly true. Looking at the WTA ratings, you have less than 100 points in, of ELO between Simona Halep at number one and Sabalenka at number 10. And then add three more points and you get Bencic at number 11 as well. Uh, so yeah, they're pretty tiny gaps. Now, did you ever have a UTR on 30 Love? Twice. I'm, I'm glad you listened. Um, I thought you did. So do you, ha- do you have a feel for how much weight we should put on, on UTR ratings for pros? You know, I one of the things that I, I don't love about UTR and made clear in, in those shows, I hope, is is the proprietary nature of it. So it's hard for me to be too specific about my how much weight I put on it because of how little I know of the inner workings. But I think it has a lot in common with ELO, but maybe weights recent results more heavily. Um, so I think it's I think it's reasonable. I think it's probably I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out that it's somewhere in between WTA rankings and ELO in terms of predictivity and maybe closer to ELO. Yeah, that's a that's a good point about weighting recent ratings. Did they say anything about a, a higher weight on recent ratings? Not methodologically, but when I noticed some like up-and-comers are like, yeah, we do um, – like you can rise quickly or I, I forget how they phrased it, but I took that to mean that it's, it's set up to, um, to be more aggressive with recent results. And, you know, it could be that that is a very sound methodological decision based on what they found to be predictive or to produce the best, um, tournaments. You know, we talked before about how some kinds of ratings and rankings can be lagging indicators of level. So maybe they're trying to counter that, especially for young players. I mean, it is tuned to work with developmental players uh, who maybe have fewer results. So I can understand why it might look a lot more aggressive on the pro level. Yeah. I was thinking the same, uh, exactly what you just said that if, if it's geared towards teenagers or younger kids, then presumably they are developing faster and maybe Andreescu or Amanda Anasimova. And I remember the last time we had this conversation about UTR was they announced that, Amanda Anasimova was, I think, in the top 20 in UTR. I'm not sure if she still is. Uh, but that was considerably more aggressive than ELO was for her at that point. Um, you expect those players to be developing faster than 
if you know Kerber has a career year. I mean, she's only going to improve so much uh, in in a calendar year. But uh, certainly, an eighteen year old player is going to improve more. A twelve year old player could improve a lot more than that. So, if that's what the system is built around, then you'd expect to see those kind of results. That said, I mean, I know that she was playing much lower level tournaments um, late last year, but you know, since what would this be like the last mm-hmm, like four months or so? She's thirty four and three at all levels. That's she, outrageous. She beat um, number three Wozniacki in Auckland. And she beat number six, Vitalina, number eight, Kerber in Indian Wells, and then number eight, Kerber in Miami. Uh, her losses were to Kennan, Sevastova, and Gerges. None of them bad losses. I mean, and God, I, I know that Elo is not taking into account uh, scores, but those were all three setters, too. Um, that is, I mean, it, I know you just did a post that was about her uh not long ago when was that was that during the australian open or in auckland no auckland after auckland um but my god there's like there's a lot to say about her yeah it is it it is really impressive and i I remember that i think after the australian open i i wrote my economist piece about naomi osaka and focused on not so much on her age but the age difference from tour average and osaka being not quite 21 is she's very young by any standard but looking at the history of the wta we've had a lot of teenage champions and including some players who were teenage champions and then barely made a mark in their 20s so it's it's important to remember that that's not what tennis is now i mean osaka winning a slam at 20 and a half is like winning a slam at 16 and a half uh, 20 years ago and Andreescu was coming along and doing all of this, and she's almost two years younger than Osaka is. So, I mean, it, we talk about Sabalenka as the next big thing. Um, maybe it's just me talking about Sabalenka, but Andreescu is two years younger than Sabalenka is. Um, I mean, there, there's just not very many players in their teens who are making any kind of impact on the WTA Tour, and here she is like, beating everybody, like you say. Yeah, you know... When you said you you said something like oh when you, when Osaka wins at twenty and a half it's like when someone won at sixteen and a half decades ago I don't I don't know if I got those numbers exactly right but well I was making them up too <laughs> yeah but, but just for continuity um, and and it, as you were, before you were saying that I was thinking I would love some kind of rough conversion and this is for both tours like we we've both commented in various forums over the years on both tours and the change in the um, the trends both at young ages and older ages and it, it always feels a little frustrating writing or saying those things because we're sort of hand waving we're saying like this has changed but we haven't tried to put a number on it and I don't have a great idea for how but um, but maybe one will come to me but it, it would be nice to be able to say like what Andreescu has has done it would be like if she had done this at age 15 or at age 13 in um, in 1984. Yeah, and that's what I was trying to do a little bit in the the Australian Open piece I wrote about Osaka is it, I, I took a really simple approach to it, just saying let's take the the average age, I think it was the average age of the top 50, and express everyone's age relative to that. So Yes, that was a when, good first, yeah, that was good. So maybe when, when Capriotti was in her, when made her first run, she was a minus six because she was 15 and tour average is 21. I'm making these numbers up. I don't really know, but, um, 
but Andreescu right now, she's 18 and a half-ish, and tour average is, what, like 26 or something? I'm not sure. I should know. But she's minus... If, if my, if my made-up numbers are true, she's minus seven, so she's even younger in those terms than Capriati is, or Capriati was at that point. Uh, that's, like you say, Carl, it's, it's, a, it's a good first step. It's only a first step because we can't just assume that the aging curve is this... It is just like a, a a set image in Microsoft Paint that we can shift around the screen. Exactly. <laughs> like yeah, we can't just move it left and right on the axis um, because it, back in back in the days we're talking about with Capriati breaking in at age fourteen, like there were, a lot of the curves were incredibly steep. I mean, players were peaking at age sixteen, uh, and they were often gone by by nineteen or twenty, or at least out of the picture so so not only and so that means the curve is narrower um but it was it's also shaped differently i mean that's that's the thing that i keep coming back to and i think i i keep talking about it like this, this big issue that i need to look into and i'm not looking into it but um we're assuming this aging curve that looks a certain way and yet we have so many players over the years who show up not quite fully formed but awfully well-formed early in their career. I mean, certainly there was Capriati, there was Martina Hingis, lots of players in that era. Maybe Andreescu is is returning us to, to see something like that. Um, because she's doing this well at 18 doesn't mean she's going to... doesn't mean she's at some specific early point in the curve. We don't know she's going to get better, uh, but certainly the potential is there. I mean, that that's what's so, so exciting about it, that if we do take some of these assumptions from like the simple age adjustment, then she might have seven years of improvement ahead of her, which is pretty scary for someone who's number seven in ELO and number two in UTR. Uh, but there's there's a lot of cautionary tales in WTA history of players who are really, really good at 18 or 19, and that's all they ever did. Um, yeah, and sometimes they we've talked about Benchich and her, her route to where she is now, and Sometimes they don't have the continued meteoric rise because only so many players can be in the top 10, but, and also because of injuries, but they still have very good careers. Yeah. Benchich is an interesting case right now. And she, she's had this really great month, uh, nice deep run, losing to Kerber in the semis at Indian Wells. And then she shows up in Miami and loses to Yulia Putintseva, uh, which is just a reminder that, there aren't really hot streaks on the WTA right now, except for Andreescu. Yeah, I mean, um, showing up in Miami and losing a surprising match right away is the stuff of champions we just discussed. So she's in good company. Because Dominic Team did it? <laughs> because Sloan did it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Sloan did it as well. But Isner hasn't done it yet, just as, as further proof that he's uh, he's more consistent than we think. Or the big servers are more consistent than we think. And that he does better than expected in Miami. It's his favorite... Um, Hardcourt Masters in Florida. Well, and because he can go straight to Dave and Buster's after every match, <laughs> wherever he likes. Is it that is that that bad of a thing to say? I don't. I've never been to Dave and Buster's. It just seems like a very specific thing to say about Isner. Well, I, w- I was just trying to think of like the the suburban like chain food hangout that would be good for Isner. I just read something about Dave and Buster's earlier today, so it was on my mind. But whether we say that or. Fridays or whatever it is that makes Isner feel more at home in the U.S. Everyone, not just the Americans, loves the Applebee's in Cincinnati. Don't forget. 
right there. But didn't you write something years ago about Isner's success in America? I did. Yes, he is really good in the U.S. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I didn't attribute it to specific food, but I probably didn't do enough reporting. <laughs> yeah, that that would be an interesting interesting thing to report. I was in Cincinnati the year that Ben Rothenberg wrote his New York Times story about the the players' love for the Applebee's there, and that was definitely the talk of the press room. Was the the Rothenberg quest to get that story right? He worked hard on that one, and it, it showed in the result. And we're still talking about it. We are still talking about it. Yeah, we're not. We don't remember who won Cincinnati that year, but we do remember. The, we do Ben Rothenberg. Applebee's. I think it was Federer, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, in in one regard, the the story won the day. Um, let's see a couple of the results from the WTA side in Miami. We had another sort of disappointing week from Victoria Azarenka. She got to the second round, but lost in the second round. And also a disappointing result from Serena Williams. And I'm not sure whether she's still struggling with the same injury or illness that knocked her out in Indian Wells, or whether it's a new one, but she won her first match, uh, dropping a set to Rebecca Peterson, and then pulled out of her third rounder. Um, do you... Do you think that every additional withdrawal or retirement for Serena is is that affecting your projection of what she has left career-wise? Or did, did, is it just sort of like a, the same injury? Does, is, it, is, it, is it not affecting the projections at all? It's not really. Uh, I mean, I haven't done the study, but it seems like there have been lots of non-majors that she's withdrawn or retired out of or like pulled out of the draw at the last minute and then done just fine at the next major. Uh, I think she has very understandable priorities, which is a very, very heavy weighting on the majors and not even that much concern about what her seating is. I mean, there have been lots of times in her career where she's come into majors off of a long absence and or disappointing results even and it hasn't seemed to affect her results much in in terms of where she is in the draw so uh unless this is an injury so serious that it in two months in paris or in three months in london is hampering her play significantly i'm not that concerned i mean she is near the oldest of the players on in the wta and maybe more um prone to injury or, or has more difficulty healing from injury. But the fact that we've recently seen her win two matches makes me feel more confident than if she had pulled out of both entirely. Even if one of those matches was a three-set win over Rebecca Peterson? She made it through three sets. That is true. She did. Um, yeah, as you mentioned, she's one of the oldest players on tour uh, with her older sister, Venus. And we're going to find out, Carl, if you looked at my Around the Net recap yesterday. Do you know Do you know who the finalists were in the 1999 edition of the WTA Miami event? You know, I did read it, and I know at least one of the names was Williams. Were both of the names Williams? Both of the names <laughs> were Williams. And the, the follow-up trivia that is, is fascinating to me is, so Venus won that match uh, against Serena. It was an excellent match. Venus was defending her title, so she won in Miami in 1998 as well. Any guesses who she beat in 1998? Is this a guess or a test at how fast I am at Tennis Abstract? 
Well, at, at this point, it's turning into a test because <laughs> no. he, he, you're delaying your answer until you no, can look okay. it up. Okay, I won't, I won't look it up. I won't look it up. So the guess is who she won't beat in 98. Um, Billie Jean King. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, I'm assuming it's someone old if you're asking me to guess. Um, yes and no. Okay, was it Hingis? Anna Kornikova. Ah, Kornikova. Yeah, she had some good results. Top 10 singles player, number one doubles player. Yeah, and it, I hadn't watched her. I don't think I've ever charted one of her matches before. And so I hadn't watched her play since she was in, an active player. And I forgot how funky her game was. She had this um, two-handed slice she used a lot. Uh, On which really side? Kind of on the backhand. She did hit some forehand slices, but it was only a two-hand slice on the backhand side. Uh, but she had a solid backhand, just pesky counterpuncher all around. Did she come to net a lot? Um, I wouldn't say a lot, but by today's standards, I guess, yes. You'd say a lot. Um, and made a, a decent match out of it. I think it was straight sets, but but it was a competitive match. So I think maybe No, 2 six, six, four, six, one. Oh, okay. There you go. I, given that I watched that two days ago, that doesn't speak well <laughs> to my memory. Um, oh, yeah, no, sorry. I was I, I was reading the Key Biscayne result, which was a different tournament at the time. Sorry. Was it? Oh, no, no, no. Same result, 2664. Yeah, how did you watch that two days ago? What do you mean? I mean, and, I and think it was straight sets. Oh, I, I don't know. I forgot the first set. I'm not sure. Um... When you're charting one point at a time, it's easy to forget the big picture. And by the end, Venus was dominating. So that's probably what I've remembered. Uh, but long story short, better player than I remembered. But uh, it, it's interesting to think that Serena and Venus were already at the top of the game so long ago that they're around all these players who are basically forgotten as players. Jeff, summer uh, of 2000, I was an intern at Sports Illustrated, and one of my assignments was to do a timeline of the Williams sisters because 19 years ago <laughs> they needed a timeline of the Williams sisters because that's how much they'd already accomplished and how many clips about them and so on. And it was one of the best assignments I've ever had in my career. It was awesome. Wow. Yeah, that really, that, that tells the whole story that that was, that was 19 years ago and there's been a lot more highlights since then. Um, Let's see. We don't have a lot of time left, and we have a couple of big topics we could touch on. Let's talk about wild cards. Um, the Miami tends to have a kind of unusual crop of wild cards because the tournament is part owned or involved with IMG somehow. So usually the wild cards are influenced by who IMG's clients are and not necessarily Americans, which in a way is good. Like I hate the fact that. Americans get such an advantage because there are so many tournaments in their home country and they get the wild cards from that. But uh, Miami's better than some other events are, including Indian Wells, I think. But on the women's side, not a lot to complain about. Uh, lots of promising young American women, Whitney Osegue, Coco Gauff, um, a couple of players I'm forgetting. But the, the really controversial wild card there was for Mario Osaka, Naomi's sister, who's doesn't have the talent or the ranking to really justify that sort of thing. Um, 
On the men's side, it was much more of a mixed bag. Miomir Kecmanovic uh, got a wild card. There was a Taiwanese player whose name I'm forgetting who, who got a wild card. Not as many Americans as you'd expect. David Ferrer got one as well, so it was kind of a mixed bag. Uh, I'm curious what you think, Carl. It, the standard for wild card seems to be just find the best home country players that didn't quite make the cut. But for various financial promotional reasons, Miami has gone a different direction. Uh, do you think that makes for a better more interesting draw or would you rather would you rather see the the home players get their shot get their shot i mean there's got to be at least a third way if not a fourth or fifth no way. There's, there's only there's only two options <laughs> the, the, no, my, this, this is a multiple choice question carl i mean the uh the the feeling of like big star gets sibling in because of their cloud sucks it's patronage i mean i don't know the whole backstory and like it's not like she's never played a pro tennis match before so um you know i I keep that caveat but if that's what happened and we've seen that happen with with djokovic in certain tournaments in the past and i'm pretty sure a lot of other players who i'm forgetting because their siblings weren't that memorable in their performances that's a bummer the the all-time leader in wildcard entries is patrick McEnroe. (laughs) <laughs> there you go. Although, you know, he peaked in the top 50, so he eventually made it count somewhat. Um, well, he had the advantage of the name and the sort of vague promise and close enough ranking, so he really hit the jackpot for wild cards. Yeah. Uh, he hit the jackpot by being good at tennis as well as having the name. Um, and, of course, you know, they wanted him in the doubles draws. The on the on the men's side in Miami, the two um, players who aren't American who you mentioned, and you know I, those are both I think maybe the third way that I was thinking of like those are players who you just feel like yeah that that makes sense and it doesn't matter where they're from. I mean Ferrer, it feels better to say it after he's won a couple of rounds, including against Alexander Zverev, but uh, you know it's his farewell tour, former French Open uh, finalist, I think former number three in the world, so. Uh, kind of a no-brainer. And then, do you say his name, Kekmanovic? Beats me. You know, he's someone, he's, we talked about him on last week's show, he kind of lucked into a very good spot in the draw in Indian Wells, but he made it count enough to get his ranking to where he probably would have gotten straight into Miami if his ranking had been there at the time of the entry list, and he had just come off a really good result. And I, I really like wild cards where it's, oh, this player just had a really good surprising result. They didn't make it into our tournament. Maybe they didn't even try to enter because of where their rankings were. Um, but, you know, based on where they are right now in their tennis, like they totally belong in the tournament. That, that to me is exactly what wild cards are for. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And we were, we were talking earlier with about the UTR rankings and maybe being too aggressive and young players. Um, that's one way that you might, quantitatively attack that problem like if if i were totally in charge of tennis i would probably wipe out wild cards entirely like to the extent that tournaments have just dis- total discretion over who gets to play maybe i'd leave them one or two but i would i would remove a lot of them but i wouldn't necessarily replace them just with the next few direct entries just like moving the cut from 76 to 79 um you could you could just as, w- as well end up with some of these same players by s- maybe taking the next player, the next highest ranked player under 21 or 
adding one more special entry. Like as, as it exists now, if you make it to the semifinals or finals of a tournament, um, if you're not qualified for the tournament the next week, the special entry rule gets you in the next week. You don't have to play qualifying. And you could expand that a little bit, maybe make one or two more spots available for, player, for players like that, which would have worked for Kachmanovic. Um, just like, there's a lot of players with potential, and that's sort of what wildcards are being used for, but not for the right ones. And dude, I think it could be solved in a way that wasn't as, uh, as home country focused um, and would also avoid some of the Mario Saka, Jordi Djokovic kind of controversies over the years. Um, but I'm sure that's something. What's we'll happening with wild cards lower down in the ranks? Oh yeah, we talked about that a little bit before the show, and there was an article. I think Simon Briggs was the guy who published this today, and there's been a couple other things in the the UK press recently about this with the ITF transition tour business that's got everybody up in arms this year. There are fewer places in tournaments and there's fewer places in qualifying for futures level tournaments which means that if you're ranked you know 800 in the world or something in any given week your one shot into a tournament might be a wild card place even a wild card in qualifying so what some tournaments have done especially the tournaments in um, in turkey and egypt where they're basically built around holiday resorts uh is these resorts are putting on wildcard tournaments, so basically pre-qualifying, but they're only open to players who are staying at the resorts. So it's basically just a way to get more money out of players for a chance to earn those wildcards. So the ITF has tried to cut down on the size of professional tennis, but you can't just unilaterally do that and also affect how much players want to be professional tennis players. You can only make it harder or less lucrative for them to do so. So you have these hundreds of players who a year ago might have been playing qualifying in in Florida or something. Now they have nowhere to go. The only real option to play even sort of professional tennis is go stay at a resort in Sharm el-Sheikh. And it it seems kind of predatory. It can't really be what the ITF had in mind. But as long as tournaments have that kind of discretion to do what they want with their wildcards, then it seems like market forces are going to make this happen. I mean, they might have to learn to work around new rules, but I mean, players are going to spend their money, uh, blast through whatever resources they have to get these chances, whether the ITF gives them to, gives it to them in one way or another. Uh, so wildcards seem to be a problem at, at all levels, just to tie that all together. Maybe we should just think of those wildcards at the resorts as a way for professional tennis to cash in on where the real money is in tennis, which is charging people a whole lot of money to go to resorts and get schooled in tennis. Yeah. I mean, for a lot of, a lot of fans going to Indian Wells, that's part of the deal, right? You go, you go watch tennis in the afternoon, but in the morning you get a tennis lesson in a place that's sunnier than where you live in Canada or whatever. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, definitely an issue to watch the the whole ITF transition tour we should probably cover that a little bit more on the show but it seems like such a, a such a complicated topic that I don't totally haven't totally gotten my mind around um, so we'll get there it'll, it'll be interesting to s- see what happens after more time has elapsed and we get a better sense of how much things have changed since last year 
uh, with everything the ITF is trying to do. But we'll definitely come back to that, and I'm sure the wildcard issue isn't going away either. So, Carl, let's call that good for episode 54. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. And listeners, thank you, as always, for sticking it out for the full 62 or 3 minutes of this week's episode. As I mentioned earlier, if this is not enough, you can always just listen to it again. I'm sure it gets better each time, uh, especially if you use it to take a nap. So... Thanks for listening. We'll probably be back with you in a week's time. We will see you then.